You're listening to Nightlight. Yes, welcome to Nightlight. Well, I've subtitled this program Something Old, Something New. Something Old is a selection of classic devotionals by various authors from the 17th to 19th centuries. Something New are some songs from the first album of Joanna Dooley, and it's made in collaboration with her father, composer and producer Michael Dooley. The album is called Safe Haven, and it features arrangements of four well-loved traditional hymns, plus some original compositions by Michael. And I think we'll have time to play five of these beautiful songs on this special devotional edition of Nightlight. A soundbite with Nightlight. But let's start with the first classic devotional. It's from James Russell Miller, J.R. Miller. He lived from 1840 to 1912. He was a popular Christian author, pastor of several churches in Pennsylvania and Illinois in the U.S. And this meditation is called The Man with the Muckrake. Only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. Luke chapter 10, verse 42. Paul prayed that his friends may be able to discern what is best. Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. We must be always making choices in this world. We cannot take up everything that lies in our path. And we ought to choose the best things. Even among right things, there is room for choice, for some right things are better than others. There are many Christians, however, who do not habitually choose the best things, but second-rate things. They labor for the food that perishes, when they might labor for the food that endures unto everlasting life. Even in their prayers, they ask for temporal blessings, when they might ask, for spiritual treasures. They are like the man with the muckrake in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, who only looks down and drags his rake among the weeds and worthless rubbish, while over his head are crowns which he might take into his hands. They are like Esau, who sold his valuable birthright for some lentil stew. They toil for the world's vain things, when they might have been laying up treasures in heaven. We only have one life to live, and we ought therefore to do the best we possibly can with it. We pass through this world only once, and we ought to gather up and take with us the things that will truly enrich us, things we can keep forever. It is not worth our while to toil and moil and strive and struggle to do things that will leave no lasting results when our life is done, while there are things we can do which have eternal significance. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2.
Without My Vision. That's the first song from Joanna Dooley's album, Safe Haven. And that was a 1,200-year-old Irish melody. Bringing you peace in the midst of the storm. You're listening to Nightlight. Well, up next on this special devotional edition of Nightlight, we have a meditation by William Nicholson. He was another great Christian author who penned many devotionals. This one was written in 1862, and he, like quite a number of other inspired Christian authors, were contemporaries of Charles Spurgeon. As a Mother Comforts Her Child by William Nicholson from Divine Comfort, 1862. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 13. The condescending love of God to sinners is most astonishing. Though he is the high and lofty one, yet he knows, pities, and cares for worms of the earth, sinful, frail, dying men. Human language is insufficient to express the heights and depths of divine compassion. God is called the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Also, God who comforts the downcast. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6. God's divine comfort is most endearing and effective. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. This is a beautiful and striking comparison. No other relationship can so expressively represent the parental kindness of God as an affectionate mother caring for her beloved child. 1. God will comfort his people with all the affection and solicitude of a mother. See the mother, how she loves, strives, labors, suffers, and sacrifices for her child. A mother watches over and defends her child. So does our Heavenly Father. He is a wall of fire, a refuge, a strong tower, a shield, a rock of strength, a fortress, a very present help in times of trouble, etc., etc. A mother is solicitous to care and provide for her child. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, casting all your care on him because he cares about you. 2. God will comfort his people with all the patience and forbearance of a mother, for he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Psalm 103, verse 14. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. 
Psalm 103, verse 8. 3. God will comfort his people with all the forgiveness and consolation of a mother. How ready is she to forgive her erring, wandering child, and how ready to console in trouble. The Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 13. 4. God will comfort his people with all the instruction and correction of a mother. A good and wise mother will both instruct and correct. Just so the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. 5. God will comfort his people with all the constancy of a mother. When does the love of a mother end? Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15 and 16. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John chapter 13, verse 1.
and that classic hymn sung beautifully with deep feeling by Joanna Dooley was written by Horatio Spafford after the tragic loss of his four daughters in a shipwreck. He also lived in the 1800s. He was born in 1828, died in 1888. You know, the 1800s was quite a century for the spreading of the gospel. So many of the authors I'm featuring on my two volumes of classic devotionals lived during this time, in which, of course, there was also an incredible amount of missionary activity with many of the most famous missionaries like David Livingston, Hudson Taylor, so many others, taking the gospel during the 1800s to Africa, India, China, the four corners of the earth. Encouraging you how very dearly Jesus loves you. You're listening to Nightlight. Well, the next devotional was penned by one of my favorite Christian authors, John Charles Ryle, J.C. Ryle. He was born in 1816. He died in 1900. And he was an evangelical Anglican clergyman. He was the first bishop of Liverpool. And he was renowned for his powerful preaching, his many tracts, and his expositions on the four Gospels. This meditation from J.C. Ryle is called The Loving Heart of an Actual Living Christ. I'm afraid that many Christians in our day have lost sight of Christ. They talk more about salvation than about their only Savior, and more about redemption than the one true Redeemer, and more about Christ's work than Christ himself. This is a great fault, one that accounts for the dry and shriveled spirit that infuses the religious lives of many who profess faith. As ever you would grow in grace and have joy and peace in believing, beware of falling into this error. Cease to regard the gospel as a mere collection of dry doctrines. Look at it rather as the revelation of a mighty living being in whose sight you are daily to live. Cease to regard the gospel as a mere set of abstract propositions and obtruse principles and rules. Look at it as the introduction to a glorious personal friend. This is the kind of gospel that the apostles preached. They did not go about the world telling men of love and mercy and pardon in the abstract. The leading subject of all their sermons was the loving heart of an actual living Christ. This is the kind of gospel which is most calculated to promote sanctification and fitness for glory. Nothing, surely, is so likely to prepare us for that heaven where Christ's personal presence will be all, and that glory where we shall meet Christ face to face, as to realize communion with Christ as an actual living person. There is all the difference in the world between an idea and a person. Inspiring you to draw closer to God, you're listening to Nightlight. Well, the next devotional is penned by 
Thomas Boston. He was a Scottish church leader born in 1676, died in 1732. He was one of the first in Scotland to preach on the doctrine of grace and the unconditional freeness of the gospel. His teachings apparently had a profound influence on the Scottish peasantry. This meditation is called, We Shall See Him As He Is. We shall see him as he is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 Then we shall behold him who died for us, that we might live forevermore, whose matchless love made him swim through the Red Sea of God's wrath to make a path in the midst of it for us, by which we might pass safely to our heavenly Canaan. Then we shall see what a glorious one he is who suffered all this for us. Then shall we be more able to understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. When we shall fully realize that the waters of wrath which he was plunged into are the wells of salvation from whence we draw all our joy, that we have received the cup of salvation in exchange for the cup of wrath which he drank. How will our hearts leap within us, burn with seraphic love, as heaven resounds with our songs of salvation? We shall eternally, without interruption, feast our eyes upon him and be ever viewing his glorious perfections. In him we shall see everything desirable and nothing but what is desirable. We shall look into the heart of God and there see the love he bore to us from all eternity and the love and goodness he will bear to us forevermore. We who are heirs of God, the great heritage, shall then enter into a full possession of our inheritance, and the Lord will open his treasures of goodness unto us, that our enjoyment may be full. We shall not be stinted to any measure, but the enjoyment shall go as far as our enlarged capacities can reach. We shall be fully satisfied and perfectly blessed in the full enjoyment of divine goodness. Our love to the Lord, being purified from the dross of self-love, shall be most pure. We will be all love when we come to the full enjoyment of God in heaven by intuitive and experimental knowledge of Him, by full participation in the divine goodness. The enjoyment of God and the Lamb will be ever fresh and new to us through the ages of eternity. For we shall all drink of living fountains of waters when new waters are continually springing up in abundance. 
Our joy shall be pure and unmixed, without any dregs of sorrow, solid and everlasting, without interruption. We shall swim forever in an ocean of joy, where we shall see nothing but joy wherever we turn our eyes. The presence and enjoyment of God and the Lamb will satisfy us with pleasures forevermore and will afford us everlasting delight. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm 16, verse 11.
classical music buffs will recognize that simple but beautiful rendition of O Rest in the Lord. It was from Mendelssohn's aria from Elijah. You know, come to think of it, not only Mendelssohn, but many of the great classical composers also lived during the 1800s. It was certainly an amazing century, the 1800s. Great time to have been alive. Well, the next classic devotional is from Alexander Smiley. When you see his name, you would think it was pronounced Smelly because it's S-M-E-L-L-I-E, but you pronounce it Smiley. He was a Scottish minister of the Secession Church. He lived from 1854 to 1923 and is considered to be the greatest devotional writer of his generation. This devotion is from his book, The Secret Place, and it's titled... My subtlest and strongest enemies are within myself. Fighting a long and hard campaign, I shall be very foolish if I underestimate my foes. There are many of them, but they serve under a trinity of wicked captains. 1. If any man loves the world, writes John, The love of the Father is not in him. The world is my sworn and unrelenting enemy, an enemy all the more dangerous because it professes to be something so different, the best of comrades and the truest of friends. I must take my part, and that with diligence, in the world's business. Yet what a risk there is that it should absorb my thoughts morning and night. Then I shall become selfish and earthly and unspiritual. I must make my acquaintance with the world's literature, and much of it is beautiful and good, but I am prone to give it an undue attention and to forget the divine library which God's finger has penned. I must mingle among the world's citizens, and many of them are love-worthy and full of charm. Yet when I prize them overmuch, they separate me from Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Under its kindly face, the world is a hostile power. 2. Your adversary the devil, writes Peter, here is another stupendous antagonist. The accuser of the brethren prowls about, unseen and malignant sleeplessly plotting my harm. Never should I leave off my spiritual armor. The flesh lusts after the spirit, writes Paul. After all, my subtlest and strongest enemies are within myself. Old sin comes back, seeking the mastery again, and much in me loves it, and goes out to meet and embrace it. There indeed is my greatest hazard, there my most deadly snare. Oh, wretched man that I am, I re-echo the ancient cry, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Yes, my worst foes are entrenched within the citadel of man's soul, within my own heart. My God, I have no might against this great company 
neither do I know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Jude chapter 1 verse 24 and 25. There are dangers and perils peculiar to a state of prosperity by Jared Bell Waterbury from The Voyage of Life, 1862. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Mark chapter 4, verse 19. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 18, verses 24 and 25. There are dangers and perils peculiar to a state of prosperity. I understand how little apprehension is felt by the votaries of the world in regard to the moral dangers of earthly prosperity. Be it so, says the eager devotee of wealth or fame, I admit there are some such dangers, yet who would not be willing to run the risk if he might only be one of fortune's favorites? Give me my wishes in this respect, and I am ready to incur the hazard and to take the responsibility." foolish declaration. You know not what you say. Your selfish heart, thirsting for riches or reputation among men, and bent on their attainment as containing in your estimation all that man can wish, sees not the evils which lurk in the path that leads to them, nor the perils to which when obtained their possessor is exposed. Blind, or rather dazzled to blindness by that one object, the golden prize, you do not see the temptations which beset the man who is determined to seize upon it. In the pursuit of wealth, dishonesty, sinful worldliness, neglect of the soul. In the possession of wealth, avarice, pride, sensuality, the deceitfulness of riches is a scriptural expression which experience, interprets, and verifies. These are deceitful. Their power to make happy is mere pretension. Riches may add to one's happiness who has other and higher elements of felicity, but when they are sought as the principal means of happiness, they are sure to pierce their possessors through with many sorrows. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things 
and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. And that devotional was from Jared Bell Waterbury. He was an American minister, an author who was born in 1799, died in 1876. And he was the author of more than 30 books and numerous published tracts, sermons and hymns. It's quite a pleasant night when listening to Nightlight. Nightlight. Well, here's the fourth song from Joanna Dooley from the album she made in collaboration with her father, Michael Dooley. Beautiful, beautiful songs. And here's another one. It's one of Michael's original compositions called The Beauty of the Lord.
Well, the next inspiration is from James Buchanan, 1804-1870. And it's amazing how almost all of these writers were contemporaries of each other. He was a minister in the Church of Scotland, had a great reputation not only as a writer, but also as an earnest and eloquent preacher of the Word of God. This inspiration is called God's Perfect Wisdom in the Management of Our Affairs. The Lord reigns, Psalm 97, verse 1. The Bible lays a solid ground for our comfort when it assures us that all things are under the government of God. He superintends the affairs of this world, both as the provident parent and as the moral governor of his creatures. The Bible declares that God created them and that whatever beings he deigned to create, he does not disdain to care for. It assures us that no being is so great as to be exempt from his control, and none are so little as to be beneath his regard, and in like manner that his eye is directed to every event which may befall any one of his creatures, with no event being either so momentous or so insignificant as to be beyond his management or unworthy of his notice. The sparrow which falls to the earth is not less an object of his regard than the seraph that stands before his throne. That all his creatures in this world and all the events of human life of whatever kind they may be are under God's regulation and control is of itself fitted to banish that feeling of uncertainty and hopelessness which the aspect of events might otherwise awaken. And how important to know that nothing happens by chance, that everything is ordained and appointed according to certain divine principles which are fixed and stable, and that these principles will continue to be developed until the grand end of God's government shall have been attained. But however important this information may be, it could ill suffice to cheer the heart amidst its sorrows or to inspire that living hope which alone can bear us up under their heavy pressure, were we not further assured that the government under which we live is conducted by a God of infinite intelligence and wisdom, a being who cannot err, one who knows the end from the beginning, and is alike incapable of choosing an improper end or of employing unsuitable means for its attainment. A persuasion of God's perfect wisdom in the management of our affairs is the more needful in proportion as we feel our own helplessness and are taught by disappointments and trials that our affairs are too high and too great to be managed by ourselves. And when assured of this precious truth, we shall the more readily submit to all God's appointments, satisfied that although we know not the plan of his operations, yet it is known and approved of by one whose wisdom is the best guarantee of the universe. 
And thus, too, will the idea of blind fate be excluded, not less than the idea of chance. Still, the heart desires something more. It is not enough that the world is neither left to the random vicissitudes of chance, nor governed by a blind and inexorable fate. It is not enough for our comfort to know that a God of infinite intelligence presides over its affairs, and that its laws are the emanations of his unerring wisdom, great and glorious as these discoveries are. The heart longs to know the character, not less than the wisdom of that almighty being, and to be made acquainted if not with his secret purposes, at least with the nature of his moral perfections and his dispositions towards ourselves. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. On far distant shores where the wild waves roar with the song of the seafarers in brave sailors cry
And that was the title track of our featured album on this special edition of Nightlight, Safe Haven, an original hymn composed by Michael Dooley and sung by his daughter, Joanna Dooley. Nightlight. What a delight. Well, the last devotional is from the letters of John Newton. John Newton lived from 1725 to 1807. He went to sea at an early age and worked in the slave trade for many years, becoming captain of a slave ship. After he got saved and became a Christian, he became an Anglican minister and a prominent campaigner against the slave trade. And he lived to see Britain's abolition of the slave trade in the last year of his life, 18. He also wrote a number of well-known hymns, including Amazing Grace. Here's his devotional. It's entitled, He Will Not Spoil Them. Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. The Lord loves his children and is very indulgent to them, so far as they can safely bear it. But he will not spoil them. Their sin, sickness, requires strong medicines, some of which are very unpalatable. And when our case calls for such, no short-sighted entreaties of ours will excuse us from taking what he prepares for our good. It is comforting to know that every dose is prepared by his own hand, and not one is administered in vain, nor is it repeated any oftener than is needful to answer his purposed end. Until then, no other hand can remove the affliction which he lays upon us. When his merciful design is answered, he will relieve us himself, and in the meantime he will so moderate the operation or increase our ability to bear it that we shall not be overpowered by it. Afflictions are useful and in a degree necessary to keep alive in us the conviction of the vanity and unsatisfying nature of the present world and all its enjoyments, to remind us that this poor world is not our rest, and to call our thoughts upward where our true treasure is, and where our hearts ought to be. When things go on much to our wish, our hearts are too prone to say, it is good to be here. Thus the Lord, by pain, sickness, and disappointments, by breaking our cisterns and withering our goods, weakens our attachment to this world and makes the thought of leaving it more desirable. Trials are medicines which our gracious and wise physician prescribes because we need them, and he proportions the frequency and weight of them to what the case requires. It is true, without a single exception, that all his paths are mercy and truth to those who fear him. The Lord afflicts us for our good, but it is always a thousand times less than we deserve.
Well, we're out of time, but I hope you enjoyed those classic devotionals as well as those beautiful, beautiful songs by Joanna Dooley. If you go to cdbaby.com, search for her name or the album title, Safe Haven, you can download it for a very small fee. And we look forward to playing the other five tracks on upcoming nightlight shows. Well, that's all for now. God bless you. Bye-bye.